Welcome to the Horseman's Academy podcast presented by Lundahl Performance. We believe in making advanced horsemanship accessible, and our mission is to present a raw, authentic look at horse training. We're problem solving, we're answering difficult questions, and we're breaking down common sense exercises for riders of all levels. On this podcast, we document the lessons we've learned in our own horsemanship journey while offering insights that might help you achieve your horsemanship goals. Thank you for listening. Getting owned by a stallion. What does it mean to get owned, first of all? Well, that's a phrase that you see a lot in like video game culture and other places. It basically means to get defeated so decisively by an opponent who is effectively controlling every aspect of what's happening and has you at their complete mercy that you can do nothing to resist them. That's what getting owned means. And today we're going to be talking about a guy who got owned by a two-year-old stallion. I've mentioned before on this podcast, I follow a lot of horsemanship groups and forums, and a lot of the things that I see there, I think serve as a great microcosm for the types of problems that horse owners experience on a wide scale. It's a great way to see the stereotypical mistakes people make. It reminds me of the things that we need to talk about on this podcast and you know, hopefully help other people recognize and prevent uh, from doing the things where people are setting themselves up to fail on a routine basis. In one of the groups that I follow over this past year, I got to witness, as many other people did, we got a front row seat to watch a young stallion metaphorically Hulk smash the confidence of an amateur horse owner who I think bit off way more than he could chew. This guy is what I would describe as your average backyard horse owner. He has one good old mare who's super sweethearted that he can trust. Um, but outside of riding and working with her, he doesn't have a ton of experience. But like a lot of casual horse owners out there with limited experience, that small sample size created a big ego. I'll talk about this more toward the end of the segment, but I know this feeling because this is exactly what happened to me when I first got into horses. I had a small sample size of a few backyard ponies that I trained, started to think I was a trainer, right? And suddenly you start thinking, man, this horse training stuff is easy. And like clockwork, someone comes along, knocks at your door, and they try to unload a problem child on you and get something for nothing. It's happened to me. I've seen it happen time and time again with non-professionals who work with a handful of horses in their backyard. And just like I did, they get lucky with some good-minded horses who aren't challenging them very much. But then the second that you decide to take in a more challenging horse with no professional mentor to help you through that experience, you get burned and your confidence gets crushed. It's like going from Little League to Major League Baseball in one step. It's a massive shock because it's infinitely more challenging. But metaphorically, you're now playing against professional ballplayers. They understand the rules and quirks of the game at a deep, deep level, which means they're going to find ways to exploit you in ways that the Little League player would never even dream of. The same thing happens with horses. You step away from the Bush League horses that are super mellow and don't really challenge you. Um, they kind of put up with your amateur bumbling and fumbling. And then suddenly you run into a horse that is a professional people trainer a horse that thrives on resisting, chumping, exploiting, disrespecting, and dominating human beings. 
In this guy's case, that professional people trainer came in the form of a two-year-old stallion that he took in as a favor for a neighbor of his. This horse ended up running this dude's life like the mafia ran North Jersey in The Sopranos. There was a gradually increasing level of disrespect until the horse finally just went all in, got completely out of control to the point where this horse hated the human, the human hated the horse, both their lives were miserable, and it became what I call a mutually abusive situation. And there are some storylines, some lessons to be taken from this experience that I think are super important. But it should be noted that the human being in this story, who I'll refrain from using their name just to protect their privacy, um, but that person refuses all suggestions and constructive criticism, both from myself, from other professionals, and from his peers. So some people listening to this might accuse me of being a bully, but that is not my intention here whatsoever. My intention is to use this example to make a point about what happens when you make certain choices as a horse owner and you make these choices around a horse that will challenge you and call your bluffs and who has zero respect for you and creates a dangerous situation. Also keep in mind that the human in this scenario, he was posting these videos and training commentaries publicly under the guise of, you know, wanting uh, tips or advice or, you know, interaction there when in fact he really wasn't looking for that he just kind of wanted to show off here right and i've privately messaged him uh he was in a private messenger group with other trainers in fact um asking for help and advice and and whatnot but a common theme emerged where he would disregard any sort of constructive criticism or course correction that people started to offer um and so in using this example I'm like a safari guide. I'm standing in front of a crocodile-infested pit, and I'm telling all the tourists not to swim in the pit. Nevertheless, there's going to be somebody that sneaks down to the shoreline, and they start poking a croc with a stick or dangling a chicken wing in front of it. Extreme metaphor to say that I just want to dive into the different ways that this guy set himself and this horse up for failure. The things that he did to antagonize this young stallion without even realizing that he was doing it. And I want to draw attention to those things as a lesson for those who might also be tempted to try something like this. Slightly dramatic, but we're making a point here. A little bit hyperbolic, yeah. But, you know, we have a little gallows humor about some of these situations. But at the end of the day, on a certain level, it's really not funny. Because when you actually step back and think about it, this whole situation is kind of depressing. It's honestly a miracle that this dude didn't end up badly hurt or even killed by this horse. And I'm being deadly serious about that in every sense of the term. So let's look at what happened. Before the horse's training even began, um, he started posting about this horse and providing some backstory. And immediately, three big red flags were apparent. The first big red flag was this horse's breeding. It was a AQHA halter horse. And I don't care what anybody says, the vast majority of horses out there that are bred for halter today are no good. It's because the mental trainability has been bred out of halter horses over the past several decades. It's not like the old days where halter horses are supposed to be a functional example of the ideal stock horse. Halter horses are essentially bodybuilders now. Bodybuilders have great aesthetics, but they're not athletes. 
That's not what their training is designed for. Although with halter horses, it's actually worse because creating an aesthetic halter horse is not so much about training, it's about the genetics, right? And halter horse genetics is geared towards creating a certain appearance. There's no need for nor any attention given to that horse having a trainable mind or being athletic, right? Beyond just looking good. Those things don't even factor into the equation. So it's a halter horse. That's the first red flag. Second red flag is they wanted to ride this halter horse. Most of the time, and in my experience, if you're trying to ride halter horses under saddle in spite of their breeding, you'll often find them to be bad-minded, mostly non-athletic. They're very awkward, naturally stiff, and they don't seem to carry themselves very well under saddle a lot of times. And those things only add to the trainability issues that you've got on your hands already. Now, I'm sure that there is exceptions to that rule, but that's my point. The exceptions prove the rule. The vast majority of these horses are not physically or mentally suitable for most riders because, think about it, recreational riders don't want a high-maintenance horse like that that's hard to ride and requires constant maintenance and training. And these horses are also rejected by professionals because you can't really show them in anything other than halter. Um, they're bad-minded. They don't make good lesson horses. They produce less results per hour of riding than a well-bred horse. And you can't sell them to anyone other than people looking for halter horses. But in reality, you can't even sell to those people because it's a small niche group of people in the halter horse industry. And there's a select group of breeders within that that they draw from. So they're not going to go buy a halter horse from some yahoo, right? There's certain genetics and, and lineages and stallions that are in vogue right now. And serious halter competitors are not going to go for something off the street like this. So this horse has many strikes against him in multiple areas in terms of his future. This is a horse created by humans, but it will have no good course or purpose in life. And when I talk about mutual abuse, this is part of it, you know, the fault lies with the owner of this horse and with the guy who decided to train it because they're both complicit in creating an animal that has no purpose and they're providing no leadership for it. And in fact, they're antagonizing this animal and creating a pretty ugly situation. The third red flag with this horse is just the fact that it's a stallion. That means he's full of testosterone. And if regular emotions and behaviors are like the fuel going into a car, then testosterone is like nitrous oxide. It exaggerates everything. It creates intensity. It turns mere annoyances into anger. It turns a little bit of discomfort into a readiness to fight. It turns a desire for something into a relentless obsessive pursuit. Now, that can be a good thing in some ways. Great performance horses that are stallions are great in large part because they're able to harness that intensity in a way that's productive and pleasing. But the downsides of a lot of testosterone are quite obvious. In a young, untrained horse, it's a recipe for disaster unless you know what you're doing. Young horses have a shorter attention span. Stallions in general have a much lower tolerance for having pressure put on them or human beings being around them before they react. And when a stallion reacts, the kinds of things that they do are more sudden and intense than what geldings or mares typically do. 
when a stallion acts disrespectfully, they'll often be sneaky about it as well. They act out in situations where they recognize that your guard is down and they'll more quickly invade your personal space. They have a lot less apprehension about doing so than most mares and geldings. Again, there's exceptions to all those rules. There are truly great stallions out there, but again, the exceptions prove the rule. And a young horse like this that's poorly bred, uneducated, and pumped up on testosterone is like a powder keg on four legs. So let's dive into some of the mistakes that were made during the actual training. The first one was this guy did not set the tone of the relationship and get this horse's respect from the beginning. It was clear from the get-go that this horse was already very disrespectful and pushy, and it needed a massive reality check. I know another trainer made a comment about this, uh, I think it was a couple years ago, he did a, an interview or a, a YouTube video where he was talking about training young stallions. And he said something to the effect of that, you know, a stallion is like an arrogant teenage boy that just needs to be knocked down a little bit and be humbled, right? And people blew up about that and got super triggered about it. But it's kind of true, like with a lot of horses that are just disrespectful in general, but especially stallions, you need to come in and set the tone and establish yourself as the leader. And you need to, in this horse's case, because it came in already in a habit now for the past two years of its life being pushy and dominant towards humans, you've got to do something that will make a statement in that horse's mind. You've got to draw a line in the sand and have a, a zero tolerance policy for that pushy, disrespectful behavior. Your job as a trainer is to now completely reverse all those mental patterns that that owner let creep in. And you're going to have to instill the opposite habits in this horse. And that is no easy task. And you need to start it off by putting a lot of pressure on this horse, really getting their feet moving, getting control of their feet, establishing your personal space, controlling every aspect of your interaction with that horse in order to change the habits that it's currently in. And that's not what happened with this horse. He didn't get the reality check that he needed. And another thing that we often talk about with horses that are extremely disrespectful like this is that you come in and in the first few days of your program with the round pinning and establishing your personal space and the other exercises that we do, usually that's a very intense experience. That's the first time in this horse's life, especially if they're a two-year-old, that they've been worked that hard every single day, right? So the horse is back on their back foot a little bit, already kind of reeling to try to take in all this new information. They're a little bit disoriented because now they're up against a human that is interacting with them totally differently than anything they've ever experienced. So they're on their back foot a little bit. And as a trainer, when you have that momentum going in your favor, you need to capitalize on it. That's, that's a vulnerable stage where if you do your job right and continue that momentum, continue the intensity, you're just going to build up so much progress in a short amount of time. A lot of people, though, I've been disappointed to realize have been taught the opposite. They've been taught that horse training is something that you you ease into and then you slowly build up the intensity of the training over time with the horse. In reality, it's the opposite. You start off with a lot of intensity and you establish the ground rules because then everything gets easier after that once you've gained that horse's respect and attention. 
one of the analogies that's often used in horse training, especially in situations like this, is if you've got the horse on their back foot, it's kind of like in a mixed martial arts fight. If you knock somebody down to the mat as a, as a UFC fighter, right? And I'm not one, but I would imagine that if you knock a guy down, it's not like boxing where you have to retreat to your corner. You jump on him and capitalize on that moment of weakness. You know, you've got the guy off balance. So then you jump on him and capitalize on that, you know, put him in some sort of a submissive position, right? That's the whole point of the sport. And that's kind of the way, you know, not in the sense that we're thinking about it as like combat against the horse, but it is a mental game in that way, in the sense that you're effectively fighting to be the loudest, most clear voice of leadership in that horse's mind right now. The horse is, you know, it's a little bit of shock and awe in those first few days of intensive training kind of like a, a, a raw recruit in boot camp that's like disoriented and wide-eyed and barely knows where they're at at any given time, right? That's kind of what a horse is like for the first few days. So you really need to establish yourself as a leader, and that's the perfect time to do it is right there in the beginning when you have that momentum, you know, but it's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter. You've got to earn that leadership role. And that was kind of the, the next mistake that this guy made. First mistake was, uh, he he didn't set the tone right off the bat. Second mistake was he didn't maintain the momentum that he had over the first few training sessions, and he took it too easy on this horse. He allowed this horse to observe him. He allowed the horse to kind of get in a habit of how their interactions would go, and then immediately that horse, once he picked up on this guy's habits and idiosyncrasies, he started manipulating the guy. Horses are very observant about that. The third mistake this guy made in training this cult was he didn't have a plan. He was following a laundry list of exercises that he'd been given by another clinician, and he was worried about just going through each exercise and completing each exercise. He had a check-the-box mentality. He didn't have a complete program, and that wasn't necessarily his fault. He was following a program that was given to him by another trainer and clinician. But what this guy training the stud cult didn't realize is he's getting a watered-down version of that clinician's actual program. If the clinician himself had this stud cult in training, he'd be doing a lot of different things with this horse that are not in the videos and the training kits. And it's probably a good thing that they aren't because this guy might have really gotten himself or the horse hurt if he'd tried any of it. But the reality is a horse like this, there's certain things that we're going to do with them that go beyond the milk toast mass consumption version of the horse training programs that you typically see out there. You know, this horse needed things like leading by the feet exercise. He needed to be taught the tying to the foot exercise in the round pin. He needed to be humbled. He needed to be taught respect for pressure in an intensive earth shattering way that would offset his previous two years of disrespect toward human beings, but that he didn't get that. The fourth mistake this guy made was dilly-dallying around with this horse during his training sessions and not making efficient use of his time. This is a typical thing that we see with people that take horses in as non-professionals because they're not charging for the training that they're doing, and they also don't have other horses to train, so they've got all day to do things, really nothing to do, and all day to do it in. And so they get into this weird dilly-dally mode where they're spending several hours at a time with this horse, but not really accomplishing a lot. And it's a recipe for disaster. You know, for example, one of the things this guy would do is he would spend an excessive amount of time desensitizing the horse, 
Remember what we talked about, the importance between drive versus draw in the round pin exercise, the previous episode we did. You know, we talked about how important it is to first drive the horse away and get control of their feet, then allow them to get close to you. One of the things this guy did is he flipped the script and he started getting in close to the horse, desensitizing it, loving all over it without getting its respect first. And what that does is it only creates boredom and frustration because you've not established yourself, you've not gained the horse's respect, you're not in a leadership role, that horse has no incentive to want to stand still and relax next to you or pay attention to you, and the horse starts getting bored and they start getting agitated about just your mere presence. And, and this guy did not help that because he was very much a nagging mother. He would be nitpicking this horse and just crawling his way through the exercises at a snail's pace not putting decisive enough pressure on the horse to move the horse's feet, get its attention, and just make something happen. And again, that slow, plodding, not getting a lot done, never really putting a lot of pressure on the horse approach created boredom and frustration in the horse. And over time, these things combined created a lot of resentment in the horse's mind. Because think about it from the horse's perspective. He's got this human picking at him and nagging him, and making him feel uncomfortable, but never really achieving anything, never really getting over the hump on any decisive thing that they were learning or any exercise. Nothing ever really had a, a greater purpose to it. It wasn't going anywhere. Horses are very keen about picking up on that. And if that's happening, and you haven't established yourself as a leader for this horse, then eventually that horse is going to start to see you as a liability. They start to resent your presence, right? As a prey animal that looks to a leader in the herd as their key to survival, they're going to start resenting you being around if you're not the leader. They're going to see keeping you around as a potential threat to their survival. You're occupying their time. You're occupying their attention with these distractions that don't go anywhere. And the horse starts to get real annoyed about that, especially so when it comes to stud colts. The fifth mistake that this guy made was a lot of inconsistent pressure and inconsistent expectations around the horse in just his day-to-day -day training. One of the things that characterized their training sessions was that this guy had poor rhythm in his cues and the amount of pressure he was putting on the horse. He lacked rhythm and he lacked awareness of the dangerous situations that he was putting himself in by getting too close to this horse when it was being disrespectful. One of the things that would commonly happen, for example, is he'd be desensitizing the horse to some object, but instead of exposing the horse to the object or, you know, flicking it over the horse's back with rhythm, you know, he would kind of throw things with weird, sudden, herky-jerky movements around the horse, and it would cause the horse to react. But instead of just ignoring the reaction and finding his rhythm and continuing with the desensitizing, this guy would get pissed off at the horse for reacting. He'd stop what he was doing and he'd make some kind of an ineffective correction. You know, if the horse flinched, he would stop what he was doing and he would jerk on the lead rope to punish the horse or just whack on it two to three times with the stick, basically doing just enough to antagonize the horse, but not enough to follow through with any sort of purpose and make an effective correction. Instead of being black and white, he was the grayest shade of gray possible. The horse never knew at any given time around him whether it was supposed to move its feet or not. It was in a constant state of confusion. And this is something that we talk about in our Horseman's Academy program. You know, horse owners who, they get in a habit mentally 
of instead of taking action and following through and being effective in what they're doing, they get preoccupied with being indignant and frustrated at something that the horse did that made them angry. Instead of taking action, they just stop and they look at the horse huffily and they kind of jerk the lead rope, you know, or, or do some other meaningless thing, but they don't actually take enough action to do anything beyond that. And horses are very smart about that. Once you've taught the horse exactly what buttons to push, once the horse picks up on that tendency, it's game over because you've now taught that horse exactly what to do to make you frustrated and get you to stop applying that sort of pressure that it doesn't like. So every day, the horse-human interactions are getting worse and worse and worse and just adding fuel to the fire of this horse's resentment toward humans. When the horse is expected to move his feet, the cues are poorly timed, herky-jerky, inconsistent. A lot of times the horse is getting whacked out of the blue with the training stick with no warning, no rhyme or reason. Other times the horse is expected to stand still and not react, but the human handler is fumbling around, hitting the horse with different objects, backing the horse up into a fence, um, letting the gate hit the horse in the butt as the horse walks through. And if the horse flinches or reacts to that, he punishes the horse for it. And the punishment itself is nothing that's going to accomplish anything like moving the horse's feet, right? Like backing them up decisively or something like that. He just weirdly jerks or whacks on the horse a couple of times with no rhythm or purpose. And so with enough of that habit getting ingrained now over several weeks, the horse starts to really resent this guy and starts acting out in much more aggressive and disrespectful ways. This entire situation I would consider mutually abusive. The human is doing stupid things to antagonize the horse. The horse was already disrespectful to begin with, and it is just learning now how to really manipulate and chump this guy. So at this point, if you watch their groundwork sessions, hardly a moment goes by when that horse isn't shaking its head, pawing the ground, snorting, swinging its head around wildly, looking for any distractions, anything that it could possibly pay attention to other than the human being next to him. The horse's body language is constantly saying, get away from me, human, before I smash you like the vulnerable little insect that you are. But that signal is going right over this guy's head because he's so preoccupied with being frustrated at the horse for not responding the way he wants it to. He's totally missing what this horse's body language is telling him. And that all builds up to a crescendo, a point where the gloves fully come off the horse is done with the facade. His total disrespect is on full display. And he just flat out refuses to do anything now. And we don't get to see any videos of what happened at that time. But we do know that this guy's confidence was destroyed to the point that he let his wife, who's even less experienced than he is, take over the horse and see what she could do with it. And her response, which is very typical was to back off the pressure even more on this horse in an effort to de-escalate the fight that interacting with this horse, because every day just being around this horse had become a fight. The horse was looking for it now. You walk out in the barn, that horse's metaphorical boxing gloves were on and at the ready. His hands were taped. He was ready. And so she decided to really dramatically back off the pressure and lower her expectations even more. 
But if you watch the videos that she posted of her interacting with this horse, it's clear that he's just going back to his old ways of showing constant annoyance, displeasure, disrespect with what's happening around him. The only reason he's not lashing out and getting aggressive is because this lady is putting even less pressure on the horse than anyone else had before. So in lowering the bar that low, her and the horse have now settled into kind of a comfortable new normal where the horse doesn't have any expectations being placed on it. And the horse is more than happy, of course, to step down to that level. And that, that tactic of lowering expectations does actually succeed in taking the edge off of that horse's behavior temporarily. He seems to be more content on the surface and, and just not as frustrated and angry as he was before. But in reality, the only reason for that is because you're now no longer putting any pressure on him. You have zero expectations compared to before. And a, a great example of that is when she's backing this horse up on the ground. You know, if you watch how this horse is responding to pressure, he's shuffling backward at a snail's pace. He's not backing up straight. He's constantly shaking his head and he's even pawing the ground as he walks backward. He's walking so slow, he has time to paw the ground in between strides. That's basically a standstill. And because he's backing up so slow, as this woman walks forward and swings the training stick toward his chest, you know, she, she quickly closes the distance between to where the horse's nose is right up on her chest. And he's not backing up any faster. So she closed the distance. She's right up on the horse. He's not backing faster. So does she increase the pressure to drive the horse out of her personal space and enforce those boundaries? No, she just keeps applying the same old level of pressure and gets no results. And the horse is backing up at a pace that he decides. She's having no effect. He's going where he wants to. And every day it gets a little bit slower and a little bit slower until one day he's just not going to do it at all. And this whole scenario, in a nutshell, is a perfect example of how to train a horse to A, not accept pressure, B, disrespect and push human beings around, and C, manipulate human beings, manipulate human emotions, study behavior patterns, and then exploit the human being that's trying to train the horse. You know, this horse came in somewhat disrespectful. He left with a master's degree in how to thwart human attempts to train him. And the really sad part is if someone were try, if somebody were to come along and try to fix this horse, the amount of pressure that they would have to apply to break this cycle and instill entirely different mental patterns in the horse would be significant. To put the level of pressure and intensity of the training that this horse would need into perspective, if it was a stick of dynamite's worth of energy that created this mess, it's going to take an entire crate of dynamite to undo it. This horse's problems began as a, mole, a molehill. We could have brought it down then, but now we've got a mountain, and it's going to be just that much harder than it was before. Things that would have taken an hour to teach correctly the first time are now going to take 10 hours to retrain. Every exercise, every interaction, it's going to be a slugfest. Getting rid of this horse's bad habits now is going to be like the most drawn-out, bitterly fought, soul-destroying divorce court proceeding that you could imagine. You could train probably another 10 horses with the effort that it's going to take to retrain this single one. 
it could be done in theory, but is it even worth it? That's really the question. That's the kind of messes that human beings are creating with horses every single day. And the two people, two people are ultimately at fault here. The horse's owner and the guy that did the training. And one of two things would have stopped this situation from getting so out of control. The first thing that could have stopped it was if the horse's owner wasn't trying to cut corners and get something for free. Had they taken this horse to a competent professional and considered the price of doing so to be an investment in their horse's future instead of a fee that needed to be skirted around, chances are they would have been a lot happier with the results. You get what you pay for, as the old saying goes. The second thing that could have stopped this was if the guy who trained the horse had asked for help in good faith and not in the get something for nothing way of posting on Facebook and looking for validation for the things that he was already doing. He should have admitted that he was out of his element and sought out a professional. But instead, he just blindly plunged on ahead, propelled by the dopamine hits that he got off of Facebook. Because every video that he posted of his antics with this stud colt was bathed in praise and admiration by hundreds of other people who were just as clueless as he was. So when you consider that, what incentive did he have to take any criticism seriously when you've got hundreds of other people enabling you and stroking your ego every single day? Almost everybody in that scenario, you know, anybody that's exposed to something like that, where they've got all these people enabling and validating what they're doing, you fall into the risk of getting in an echo chamber and only hearing what you want to hear. And the problem is the other little birds in the nest are really only good for that validation. They're good for giving you the likes and the reactions on Facebook and the cheap dopamine hit. It's situations like that that call attention to the fact that horsemanship, while it is supposed to be fun and rewarding, is not without risks. It's not without pitfalls that need to be acknowledged and taken seriously. The process of horse training and the necessity of doing things right the first time needs to be taken seriously. Professional horsemen and the expertise that they provide need to be taken seriously. We're not part-time yoga instructors whose job anyone could do if they studied a video and hung out on some internet forums. There's a serious purpose behind what we do. In fact, I honestly think my job title shouldn't even be horse trainer in a lot of cases. It should be something like safety consultant or regret minimization specialist. Because thinking back to the scenario we're talking about here, I mean, imagine, imagine the delusion and arrogance it would take to buy a race car and try to qualify for the Daytona 500 if you have no racing experience whatsoever. Imagine the wasted time, the wasted money, the safety risks of you being on the track, putting yourself in danger, and the destroyed self-esteem that you have when it all falls apart ultimately. That is essentially what this guy did, but with horses. One of the reasons I'm talking about this story though, and going so in depth with it and making such a strong point about it, is because it, it, it speaks to me personally. When I first got into horses, I was very much like this guy. I didn't have a lot of guidance. I didn't have a mentor around me. I basically had what they referred to as Dunning-Kruger effect or Dunning-Kruger syndrome, which is where you're so dumb, you're, you're too dumb to even realize how dumb that you are. Or another way of saying that is you, you don't know what you don't know. You're so ignorant, you don't even realize 
what you don't understand yet. And that's the stage that I was in when I first got into horses. Exactly like this guy. When I first got into horses, my parents bought me a couple horses that were, I would say, lottery winners in terms of how good-minded and chill and trainable they were. As much of a bumbling moron as I was when I was first learning, these horses had a high tolerance and forgiveness of that, and they put up with all my mistakes. And at the time, I was studying videos and things like this, and honestly, you and I have talked about this before, Amy. We were even in a stage at one point where just from watching the videos and training kits alone, we honestly thought we didn't even need to do apprenticeships or get other experience. We honestly thought we had it all figured out. Yeah, we thought we had the tools that we needed. And again, we, we didn't know what we didn't know to the point of we assumed that any material a trainer put out was completely comprehensive, that it was literally, you know, what was in that box of DVDs. Those were the only things that trainer ever did. You know, after working with several trainers and just more experience, you realize how deeply untrue and how drop in the bucket that mentality is. For sure. And I went through a lot of similar things as this guy did. You know, um, I was lucky enough. W what I did initially was I found I found a mentor that helped me with some of my own horses. Right. And, and that kept me safe. That got my feet wet. But the success that I had with those backyard horses created a little bit of an ego in me to where I started to really, you know, hmm, I'm, I'm a trainer. Right. And so I, I made the exact mistake that this guy did. I, I opened my doors to take in other horses in the area because, you know, you start training horses, you really put time into horses. The horses that you have yourself are good horses by conventional standards. They're quiet, at least. Looking back, my horses were not super well trained, but they were at least quiet and controlled. And so I had other people knocking on my door. Now they weren't willing to pay, but I did what a lot of amateur people do, which is, oh, I'll take the horse in for nothing or next to nothing because it'll be good to build experience, right? Big mistake. But we see that happening with a lot of people. You know, you start to fancy yourself as a trainer. Um, you're not really ready to make that commitment career-wise, but you decide to dabble in it and you get burned. And that's what happened to me on a couple occasions. I took some horse in, horses in that were seriously bad horses. I can think of one colt in particular that was just extremely bad-minded all the way around. Another horse that I had in training, it was a paint horse that ended up, uh, I think, at a decent stage at the end of the program. But when I initially got that horse, I was legit scared by it. It had some problems under saddle of running off that I had never dealt with before, ever. And I had hardly any idea what to do. And it really shook my confidence, both of those horses. I was lucky enough to have others, again, that did not challenge me as much and that were better-minded horses. But those two in particular really stick out in my mind. And that was the moment where I really decided, you know what? There's got to be more to this. And, and I need help. I need to go learn from other professionals because clearly I'm out of my depth here. And that was where I initially went and I, I did my first apprenticeship, which was in Oklahoma. A short time after that, I did my second apprenticeship, which was a much longer apprenticeship in Texas, which is the apprenticeship, Amy, that you did as well. And, you know, then we actually had a chance to see on a professional level how these things are done and get much deeper experience. But unless you've been exposed to that environment, if, if all you know 
is horsemanship clinics or training videos, you have no idea the kinds of problems that are out there, you know, in certain horses. And when you're like this guy and you're kind of a backyard, kind of a household horseman, people are going to bring you some awful, awful stuff because they're trying to get something for free. They want somebody to take this demon off their hands and, you know, mazel tov, you know, if, if you can ride the thing without getting your neck broken, good for you because they're not willing to pay a professional to do it, but they'll put your stupid butt up there in the saddle and see what happens to you. Again, that was my experience early on, and that also happened to other people that I know. And again, guys like this, I see it on social media all the time. And what makes me sad about that is that their confidence ends up wrecked by these experiences. And even at the end of it all, they still don't know where to turn for answers. Yeah, and you hit on it, uh, you know, kind of a little bit earlier on, but another sad part of the whole dynamics of this situation, which is fairly common, is that, you know, the, the people around you see the sample of success that you have with your horses, which is great. You know, we're glad that they're having that success with their horses, and then they want that for their backyard demon lit that they've had for how many years and you know we've talked about the irony of this how the the horse trainers or the aspiring trainers or maybe they're not even trying like they're not even soliciting you know these outside training horses people just see their success with their personal horses it's that type of person that I don't know what it is, but they are going to get sent the shittiest horses, the horses with the most ingrained, hard to fix, if at all fixable, you know, almost to the point of why bother type horses. That's what appeals to, you know, that that's just the horses that get attracted to these trainers, the trainers that aren't soliciting these outside training horses, take it in as a favor, they think it'll do them a good experience, or maybe they're trying to be trainers, but their prices are very, very low. Those seem to attract these awful, awful types of horses that that horse, that horse with the ingrained dangerous habits, they need the best trainer, the most experienced trainer, um, the one with the most tools, the one with the most knowledge, like they need top notch. And so it's just a whole huge recipe for nobody being happy with the outcome, everybody being unhappy about the process in getting there and safety, you know, safety throughout the whole thing. It, it's just not present. It's not, it's not there. And oftentimes people like this guy, they're not even aware of that. And that's where it's, it's hard to watch from afar and the whole dynamics of it, they're just not good from start to finish. Some of these low level horses being brought to people that aren't ready for that. I use the analogy of like a, a super hardcore drug addict, somebody that's really messed up and has a lot of problems in their life. They need legit therapy. They need legit counseling. Sending your problem horse to somebody like this would be the equivalent of sending somebody that's totally strung out on drugs and has problems with depression and everything else. You know, it'd be like sending that person to just a random guy that has no training whatsoever in dealing with those problems. You know, more, more likely than the, the guy getting the therapy that he needs is that he's going to corrupt the person that he's going to see. They're going to be shooting up in the living room together after a month, you know, and that's what happens a lot of times with these horses is they come in like a hand grenade and they wreck people's confidence. And 
you made the point exactly. It's a certain type of horseman who is, you know, they're usually, they have a couple horses of their own. They're happy with it. People see that they're enjoying their own horses and having success with their own horses. And they start putting pressure on that person. Why don't you take in my horse? See what you can do with my horse. And if you're not careful, you get yourself into some really bad, even dangerous situations. Best case scenario, number one, you don't die. But in a lot of cases, you're going to ruin your friendship, whatever you had with this person previously. And you're going to damage your confidence as a rider. And it's not worth putting yourself through that. One of the things that we do, I, I like to talk about that this is a regret minimization program. And that's one of the reasons that we created that Horseman's Academy. Shameless sales plug, absolutely. Um, guilty as charged, but on the same token, it's this kind of stuff that was really the driving force behind that. Because so many people are approaching horsemanship with no plan. You know, they have ambitions, and that's great. That's fantastic. But they lack direction. They lack a good mentor. They lack people around them who are going to think intelligently about horsemanship, solve problems, put some skin in the game, provide this person the support that they need. A lot of people are not getting that. What they're getting is like on social media where you see a lot of tacit approval of bad ideas and bad situations being cooked up and exacerbated. Because as a horseman, it's an action-oriented thing and you can't survive in a vacuum. You've got to have good people around you. You've got to have a support system. You've got to learn from other people or you're setting yourself up for failure. So I wanted to make that point and relay the story as a lesson that speaks to those themes. Hope you guys got something out of this. Provocative, yes. Hyperbolic, yes. Over the top, yes. Absolutely. Um, but important, I believe. Because while this situation is, is extremely unfortunate, I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there. I meet them every single day who are considering doing something along the lines of what this guy did. And I hope that you know, there's a meme on Twitter of posting something and saying, I don't know who needs this, but, you know, here it is, right? I don't know who needs this today. I think they do the same thing on Instagram. But anyway, that's kind of my idea here is I don't know if you're listening to this and needed it or if you're hearing everything that I said and you're like, yep, I know somebody that did exactly that. Or maybe you yourself, like me, we, you know, we were all in the same boat at one point or maybe you were super triggered by this and you hate my guts right now, and you want to send me a message on Facebook telling me exactly that. Um, no matter what category you fall into, I would encourage your feedback. You can go to Facebook, go to Lundahl Performance, and just send us a message. Let us know what you thought of the episode, or if you have any ideas for future segments like this that are not as much training-focused. Um, they're dedicated to just horsemanship theory, psychology, philosophy, things like that outside of the normal episodes where we focus heavily on the training. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Horseman's Academy podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave a five-star rating to help other horsemen just like you find the podcast. To learn more about the Horseman's Academy or to submit a training question you want covered on the show, visit www.lundallperformance.com. Thank you.